Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in, in his bosom and gently lead those who are with, uh, with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in, in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man has shown him counsel? Whom did he consult and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and accounted as dust from the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts be enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They, account, they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or to what likeness will you compare him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers the the uh, of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare him, that I should be like him, says the whole. Compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by greatness, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the, of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exalted or exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Pray with me uh, before we begin. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word, that you would encounter people with the truth of what you have to say to them, that the words of the prophet uh, 800 years before you even came to earth, Jesus, that, that, that his words would affect our hearts even in this moment today. In your name, amen. Okay, so here's, here's the situation. We deal with life. We deal with situations. If we're Christ followers, how then do we, do we deal and walk through, through a situation? And there might be all kinds of practical ways to walk through a situation, but even practically, how do you emotionally, how do you, um, uh, in, in your constitution, your makeup, deal with, it, with a situation? And I think that this is written to answer that question. Here's how, how you deal with that. Here's how you deal with stress. Here's how you deal with... with um, uh, with, with struggles. Here's how you deal with painful situations. 
Here, here's the answer, and the answer is, is this. Isaiah's told to go up and prophesy. He says, get up to a high mountain and be a herald of good news. Lift up your voice of strength. Be a herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. And say to the cities of Judah, and here's the, here's the key phrase in this whole passage. And this is a key phrase in life. And if we understand this and if we, we, we live in this, this is a life-changing phrase. What he tells them is in their moment of struggle, in their moment of depression, in their moment of hurt, in their moment of pain, he says to them, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Right? And that's a little phrase and maybe a phrase that we do not think enough about. But one of the keys and one of the answers to fixing our struggle or dealing with our struggle is simply this, to behold our God. And everything that is going to come after is an expl explication or an explanation of that phrase that God is meant and intended to behold, to be beholden. We are meant to look at him and look to him. And the answer to our problems is not found contrary to what our, our society would tell us, contrary to what anyone would tell us. The, the solution to our problems is not found within. The solution to our problems is not found uh, in maybe just believing in ourselves more, concentrating how we're working, but the solution to our problems is found outside of us. The solution to our problems is found in a beholding. It is found in a looking at. So Isaiah says, behold your God. What he means is this, what he's saying is, don't you realize who your God is? Don't you realize who God is? And the, the rest of the passage is going to explain exactly who God is, what God does, and why then it should help us in our time of struggle. Why it should help us in our time of pain. Why it matters who this God is. And part of our problem, our collective problem with all of us, is that we do not spend enough time beholding our God and too much time beholding our problem. And when we behold our problem, our problems grow and our God shrinks. But the inverse is also true. If you spend enough time beholding your God, then your God grows and your problem shrinks. And the key problem in our time in our society is that we have shrunk our God to such a small level that he is convenient for us to control, but not big enough to fix the problems that ail our soul, our mind, our hearts, and our day by day. And so the key phrase here is, behold your God. In other words, do you know who it is that you're worshiping? Have you forgotten who it is that you're... So that is the key to the passage. Uh, in, in verse 10, he says this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. So we are going to, who is God? What does God do? We see first off that God is a rewarding God, right? He brings his reward with him. We believe, because this is quoted again in the book of Revelation at the end of Scripture, that one day the very God of the universe is going to come back to this planet in a physical earthly return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he is going to bring a reward. The idea then becomes is that there is nothing outside of his control, nothing outside of his watchful eye. And the life that you live, the life that, that, that you go through, there is coming a time, no matter what you experience now, when the God of the universe is going to return to this planet bodily and reward those who followed him. His reward is with him. But not only is he a rewarder, it says his recompense is with him. I had to use a dictionary to look that up. Not a very uh, common word, right? I have not used recompense, I don't think, yet in my life. 
I will guarantee you I will now use it because I looked it up and I'm like, great word, right? But not only is God a rewarding God, but his recompense, to recompense means to fix. He's coming again. The God who is coming is a rewarding God. Not only is God a rewarding God, but he's a repairing God. He fixes things. There is coming a, a time when he will return in glory to this earth and he will reward, but not only does he reward, he fixes. For God to come uh, and return to this earth and leave it as it were unfixed would not be enough, right? And so some of that is entirely future, right? We await the return, uh, return of Christ. We await the renewed heaven, the renewed earth. We wait that. But it also speaks to his character. If you know then that he is a rewarding God, and you know that he is a fixing God, and you know that his kingdom is, is, is present in the person of Christ, and then the reign of Christ began at, at, the at the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, then you know also that this is true of his character. And if it's true of his character, you can count on God being a rewarding God now. You can count on God being a fixing God now. You can count on his reward and his recompense. And that's what he's saying to him. Guys, don't you know? It may seem hard. It may seem dark. But God is the God of rewards. God is the God of recompense. He's going to make things right. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, bosom and gently lead those who are young. Um, in various places in Isaiah, in various places all over the prophet, they are used to getting a picture of God as the God who comes with a sword. They're used to getting the picture of God as a God who comes with, um, in, uh, in maybe modern language, the God who comes with a spanking stick. Right? If you're a parent, uh, I don't know if you, or if you're a child, let's say, if you're a child, a lot of changes since when we were a kid. But when I was a kid, there, there might have been a spanking stick, right? We, they, they're used to thinking of a, um, of a God who comes with a, with a spanking stick, and they, they feel disconnected from God. And so Isaiah's going to remind them, not only is he rewarding, not only is he repairing, but he's protecting. He is their good shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and lead those who are with young. He is going to protect them. He's not going to lead them uh, to, to um, their own devices. Not only is he rewarding, repairing, protecting, but he guides, right? It's what a shepherd does. A shepherd not only goes and rescues the sheep uh, who have wandered away, right, and protects them. A shepherd, by the way, uh, our, our vision of it in our time, uh, because we don't have shepherds, can be kind of skewed. Shepherd's like the toughest person in ancient society, because his job is armed with a stick to protect the sheep from bears and lions in anything that would attack him. He's like the toughest man. And so you get this picture of a God who is tough, but in his toughness he is protective and gentle with the ones that, that he loves. And so he's, he's a protecting God, but he's also guiding because the shepherds not only uh, rescue them when, when the sheep get into trouble, but they guide them so that they don't get into trouble. They move the flock from place to place, keeping it from areas of, of danger. And so we have a rewarding, repairing, protecting, and guiding God. And then it says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked all the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance? So you have a, 
You have a rewarding, you have a repairing, you have a protecting, you have a guiding. But here's the important one. It's what enables all of that to happen. God is also creating. He is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. Who, who was it? Essentially, Isaiah is saying here in exalted language, you, you're standing on a planet. How'd you get there? You stand on the earth. Your feet are, are anchored in, in the soil of earth that God put there because he spoke it to me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Saying this, all the waters of, of the earth, he held them in the hollow of his hands. His hands are not... Are, not, are so large or his reach is so great, his grasp is so amazing that the oceans can be held in his hands. And the reason why is because he spoke them to be. He is the one who created it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span? In other words, we have an atmosphere. We have a sky. The earth is in a galaxy. We're, we're at the exact right point from the sun to, to sustain human life, right? They found water on, on Mars this past week, NASA is saying, and it's the biggest thing ever because maybe, maybe we find other, other discoveries. And, and I'm like, okay, that's kind of, kind of cool and kind of exciting, but I, I have not yet enjoyed the wonders of this planet and this existence enough to move on to the next one because if we're, if we're just a tiny bit closer to the sun, we burn up. If we're a tiny bit further away, we freeze to death. If we were to get off from, our, off from our span, we could spin too fast, we could spin too slow, or we could be sucked. Everything is, is measured perfectly. We're rotating uh, around the sun at exactly and precisely the, 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 the right distance and the right speed and everything so that human life can be sustained, so that you can anchor your feet in the soil, so that you, you can exist because God made it that way and because he, he, he keeps it that way. He is the creator, sustainer of all that is. And the wonders of the fact that you exist on a planet is something that we do not consider enough. We just sort of go, well, that exists because you were born to it. And sometimes if you're born to something, you spend way too little time considering something Something. But it is absolutely amazing, absolutely inconceivable, absolutely mind-blowing that you are on a planet that is spinning at so many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles per hour right now that your feet stay on the planet. Because if it didn't spin at that speed, you would shoot into the air because gravity happens by, by, by that, that, that rotate. It is incredible. And we spend very little time considering it. And yet God is the one who caused it to be, right? Not, contra what some others would say, not by chance, not by a crazy happening, not by randomness, but by the divine sovereign choice of a living God. You stand with your feet anchored in soil on a planet where you breathe earth or you breathe air because the earth grows trees and the trees take in carbon dioxide and kick out oxygen so that you can breathe and your lungs can work and life can be all over. And this planet, the, the, the oceans can be held in his hand and the stars are not on the earth, but God marks off how far the stars have to be from us. He's rewarding, repairing, protecting, guiding. He's creating and sustaining but not only that, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, verse 13, and what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? 
Not only is he rewarding, repairing, protecting, guiding, creating, and sustaining, he is all-knowing. This God needs no help to know. This book is written to people who have influence from the Babylonians. The Babylonians who have held them in captive, the Babylonians who would attack them, the Babylonians who, who, have, who are constantly warring with them, but the Babylonians have their own gods. And the gods of the Babylonians is exactly what Isaiah is calling out here. He says, who gives him counsel? Who adds to his knowledge? Who tells him what to do? You know why? Because the weak little gods of the Babylonians who were no gods at all needed counsel. The Babylonian gods didn't know everything they had to ask other Babylonian gods and then if that Babylonian God didn't know they had to ask another Babylonian God it's bureaucracy it's bureaucracy for gods nobody has the answer apparently Babylonian gods are like calling the IRS and trying to get an answer they needed help but the God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God of the Bible needed no help. He does not have to turn to a God next to him and, and, and get counsel. What do you think? He doesn't ask, have to ask them how this functions or that functions. Our God, the God of Israel and the God of Judah and the God of Scripture is not limited by any sort of area. He doesn't have an expertise. He does not have, have a specialization. He is in charge of, in control of, and all knowledgeable about everything. It flows from the fact that he is creator and sustainer. He knows everything about the earth because he made it to be that way. He knows everything about you because he made you to be that way. He is the designer. He is the crafter. He is the one who speaks art. I know we have art prize going on downtown, but this planet is one giant art prize for the ultimate artist. His name is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel, the God of Judah. He is not a Babylonian God who must specialize. He is not a Babylonian God who must ask permission. He is not a Babylonian God who must seek counsel. No one counsels him. He knows all. It follows his design. He's rewarding, he's repairing, he's protecting, he's guiding, he's creating, he's sustaining. He is all-knowing. Contra the polytheistic gods of the time, he knows all. Verse 15. And behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor it's beast enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. This is what it's saying. Not only is he all of those things, he's all governing, right? We are in election season in America, which means you can turn on your TV and watch... Uh, Watch debates. You can watch seemingly hundreds of Republicans debate against each other, right? And then I think coming up this week, you can watch the Democrats uh, debate against each other. You can turn on comedy shows and watch their commentary on those debates against each other. You can turn on news shows and still inadvertently watch comedy about those those. Uh, debates with each other and you can open up your newspaper which we don't really do anymore but you can open up your browser go to MLive or the free press or something and read about these debates we are in a political time and all America is is worked up and excited about this idea who will govern us who will lead us who will be in charge of us who will it be and in the midst of that Isaiah speaks 
from 800 years before Jesus and reminds this, that no matter who is elected, only one truly governs. I remember the first time uh, uh, Barack Obama was, was elected. And um, I don't think it's any, um, any secret to say that, that evangelicals over the last however many years are historically and overwhelmingly voting for the GOP or voting for, for Republicans. That's, that's just a statistical fact. And so when a Democratic candidate won for the first time after eight years of a Republican candidate, you could watch, watch Christian people or evangelical people go, oh no, what are we gonna do? All is lost, he's in charge. What, and, and everybody is like, this guy's in charge, all is, all, everything is ruined. And I remember at that time uh, blogging a little blog post that, that apparently offended some people, but it was called this, Jesus voted for Obama. And people go, well, how can you say that? He could never, you can't say that. I'm like, no, because he's all governing. He's in charge. Do you know what sovereignty means? Sovereignty means that he, by his choice, by his will. See, you go, how could you say that Jesus would vote for Obama? And my response would be, how could you say that something happened that Jesus didn't allow, that he didn't ordain, that he's not in charge of? See, I think what happens in our country is that we get mixed up in this. And by the way, I'll make you no promise. I mean, Donald Trump is running. Okay, if our country votes for Donald Trump, this is not a political statement, just a just a statement. If our country votes for Donald Trump and Donald Trump becomes president, someone's going to bomb us out of existence like three weeks later. Okay, we will not exist. People go, we're America, we'll always exist. I go, Roman Empire, bigger, more powerful, more amazing than the United States ever was. Comma, not there anymore. Right doesn't exist. And so, so I'm not promising you that America will be here three years from now. I'm not promising America will be here one year from now. I'm not promising you we won't get invaded. I'm not promising years of, of American political prosperity. I'm simply suggesting to you this fact that God is all governing and the nations of the earth are like a drop in the bucket. In the United States, which we typically tend to think of as, as the nation, uh, there's, a, there's a strain running through American theology that seems to suggest that, that the United States is the new Israel, that the United States is the new chosen people of God. And, and all I'm suggesting is this, is that it is God and God alone who is above all governments. He's above all rule. He rules as he chooses and not at the behest of any party. You see, Jesus Christ has never and never will need to be elected. He doesn't need your vote. He doesn't need your support because he is not elected. He is anointed by the Father God, the all-knowing, the all-governing one. This country and every other country is in great hands, no matter who sits in the puppet seat at the top. He's all governing. Verse 16, to whom will you liken God and to whom will you compare him? An idol? An idol? It's an exclamation point. An idol? A craftsman crafts and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. What are you, what are you comparing him to? 
He's, he's, he's rewarding, he's repairing, he's protecting, he's guiding, he's creating, he's sustaining, he's all-knowing, he's all-governing, and therefore, he's incomparable. What are you comparing him to anything? And then he points out the history, and the history of Israel, and the history of Judah, and the history of God's people, they have had a proclivity or, or a tendency to constantly try and go find something else to worship, Right? We remember the story of Moses being up on the mountain, receiving from God the word of the Lord, and in his time up the mountain, the people down the mountain get their gold together, melt it down, make it into a golden cow, and begin to worship it. Apparently, because we say in our own time, that seems super dumb, right? I enjoy the fact that Isaiah seems to be replying in exactly the same way and saying, that's super dumb, Right? You made it with your own hands. You built it. You put it together. You paid someone to do it. It's wood with gold on the outside. It's gold-plated wood. Gold-plated wood is really shiny wood, but it's not worthy of worshiping because it can't do anything, and it's not anything that was listed before. What are you doing? That's what he seems to be, seems to be saying. How in the world could you think that you could get a stick Dip the stick in gold, and the stick dipped in gold would be a good God. How could you think that? That's crazy. You can't compare Yahweh, the God of the universe, the rewarding, repairing, protecting, guiding, creating, sustaining, all-knowing, all-governing one to a stick covered with gold? Why would you do that? Right? And I think we get that that's crazy. Right? However, what we typically don't get as crazy is that we also have our own sticks covered with gold, right? You go, well, I don't have, bet you do. I'll bet you do. For me, typically I can list lots of sticks covered with gold, but the number one stick covered with gold is the stick who gets out of my bed, takes his head off my pillow, puts on my pants, goes into my bathroom and brushes his teeth in my mirror in the morning, right? What am I but an idol unto myself? Uh, John Calvin and others have commented that the, the human heart is an idol factory. It makes them like crazy. And the reason it makes idols like crazy is because the key idol is the human heart. We want what we want, and we want it for ourselves. The original sin is Adam and Eve thinking that they could be this god, right? That's the root and the heart of idolatry that we could compare. Yes, God, I know that you do all those things, but I really know what's going on in my life. We act as if God is some uninformed meddling friend who's trying to tell us what to do and if there's one thing we idolaters hate it's when when the real god messes with our idolatry and sometimes frankly that doesn't happen through through direct word from 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 god but sometimes god sends friends into our lives right and the friend says something to us that is perfectly honest perfectly true and it makes us perfectly angry why because they have attacked our idol they have suggested that the stick made of gold is not worthy of our worship we hate that and yet that is the condition of the human heart and the cry of this passage is that the God of Scripture is incomparable. In other words, uh, I'll, I'll just say what I, what I say often. We're pretty bad humans because of sin. We're terrible gods. We're not, we're not, we're not well-suited to run our own lives. We're not well-suited to be in control. We're not well-suited to be in charge. If we allow ourselves to be our own gods, if we allow ourselves to be in charge, all we will do is seek to meet our own needs in ways that will destroy us. We do not compare to the God of Scripture. And the God of Scripture reminds us, to what will you compare me? 
I'm a maker. I was not made. I'm a creator. I was not created. I reward because I have it all. I fix because I can. I protect because I have the power. I guide because of my love. I, all of this happens because I created and sustained you. The heart that you worship is a heart that I formed. I put it in you. I made it beat. I told it how many beats per minute. I told it how to transport blood all over your, your body. I told your lungs how to take in air and expel them. I told your brain neurons how to tell your muscles to move in your lips. To, to work in your fingers to grasp. I did all of that. To what will you compare me? I can't be compared to your pitily little human heart. It's just an idol. It's just a stick covered with wood. So then he continues. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, who stretches, uh, who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing and the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off into stubble. Here's the idea. So, so God's people are always under attack from other nations and God is simply reminding them of this, is that I will destroy any nation with the word of my mouth at any time I so choose. You are not under attack in any way that I have not ordained for your good and my glory. And so we are typically... Right? Because we are a remnant. We are exiles living in a, in, in, a, in a country, in a nation that is not a theocracy, living in a, in a nation as to its human rule that is not under the rule of, of, of God. In other words, we are not under a theocratic rule. Because of that, we, we live in a nation. So we do live in that nation. Uh, so typically speaking, the Christian nation is not under under attack in the same way that they would have heard this, like the children of Israel were under literal attack from other nations. But what I do want you to hear is this. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That applies to the rulers of nations. It also applies to those people who would rule in your life, to people who would come against you, to struggles that would happen against you, to people who would oppose you and people who would oppose the work of, of Christ's church. God brings those who oppose him to nothing. He makes them stubble. They're, they're like nothing before him. It's not even a struggle for him. So then... Are repairing, rewarding, protecting, guiding, creating, sustaining, all-knowing, all-governing, incomparable, judge of the nation's God. We come to a really fun one. He's all of that. And then we read this. To whom shall we compare him that I should be like? To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. So what, what are you saying? Look up to the stars. Okay, look up to the stars. Who created these stars? Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So lift up your eyes and see all the stars. Who created these? Who spoke them into being? Who hung them in the sky? He brings them out at night, right? 
We don't serve a, 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 a pantheistic God, the God who created and walked away and let it. No, he sustains it. He calls them out at night. Who is this? The stars appear at, at night in our sky. The stars are where they are because God told them to be. Who is this who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power and not one is missing? I need you to understand what was just said. So, the claim of, of, of Isaiah, the prophet, because God told him to say, repeating the words of God, says, he is the one who put the stars in the sky, and he knows each one by name. Right? So, I have four children, and I remember their names all of the time. Right? It's pretty good. Right? I know people who also have four children and sometimes forget the names of those children. No judgment, right? Just sort of gets them confused. They become into like different names, you know? Like they try and say one name and it becomes a combined name. It gets all, all jumbled up. No big deal. Not judging, right? Coach a football team uh, that's got 40 kids on it. I was talking, I had to talk to the Grand Rapids Press about something to read them a statistic on Friday and I kept forgetting their last name. I'm like, What's, dude, what's Jamar's last name? It's Bennett, by the way. But I couldn't remember that at, at the moment because my, my brain got confused. That's, that's 41. Uh, you're all here. I know all of your names. We could go through it. But shockingly, if we did that, I might have like that brain thing where my brain just freezes and I might forget one of your names, right? Uh, so you, we have the adults. I, I can give you, give you names. Um, we get much bigger than that. I'm going to start to, to break down, right? Because I'm human. This passage says that God knows the stars' names. So I said to myself, well, that seems like that would be a big number. How many is that? So I looked it up. Do you know how many stars there are? Here's the estimate. We're in one galaxy, right? We're, we're in one, one little galaxy. In our galaxy are 100 billion stars. Okay? So, for God to know the names of the stars in the Milky Way, he knows the names of 100 billion stars. And you go, well, that's, that's absolutely amazing. That God could call by name 1 billion stars, right? By the way, we, we most of us could not write the number 1 billion. <laughs> 100 billion on, on, the, on paper first time, right? You'd be counting zeros. You'd be like, okay, is that enough? Maybe you're mathematical and you're judging me right now, but, right? But 100 billion is a big number. But God knows the names of each of the 100 billion stars in our galaxy, which is super impressive. But I want you to consider this. As far as we know, and by estimate, there are 10 trillion galaxies. 10 trillion galaxies. So, our galaxy consists of 100 billion stars. But, of those little groups of 100 billion stars, there are 10 trillion of those groupings. 10 trillion groupings of 100 billion, right? I'm no expert at math, neither the new math nor the common core math. Right? or any other kind of math. I will guarantee you, I cannot write 10 trillion. I do know this, that 1 trillion is equal 
to 10 hundred billions, right? Which means, is that right? 10 hundred, see, we don't know. That's what I'm saying. The math is too big for our, our brains to comprehend. But I believe <laughs> that one trillion would be 10 hundred billions. 10 hundred billions equals up one, but there's 10 trillion of those. In other words, God knows the name of every star in the universe, and there's 10 trillion galaxies, which means, you ready for this number? That means that there's 100, approximately, 100 octillion stars in the universe. That is my first ever public usage of the word octillion. <laughs> right. I had no use for the word octillion until I realized that there is 100 octillion stars. And this God knows their name. This God knows their orbit. This God knows their, 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 their distance from one another. This God set them in place. This God set, let them be. This God speaks their name. And so when you consider that there's 100 octillion stars, which, by the way, I believe is a 1 in 29 zeros. Okay, I believe that's what I read. This God, the namer, the caller out of 100 octillion stars, when you consider that there's only about 7 billion humans, makes you realize that, that he knows your name. He knows your comings and goings. He knows it all. It is incomprehensible to me the fact that we live in a galaxy with a hundred billion stars, right? We are so sun-centric, right? We, we, we <laughs> orbit around the sun. The sun is literally the center of our, our universe. And yet it's only one of 100 billion, 100 billion stars. And our God, the God of the Bible, the God of Judah, the God of Israel, Yahweh, put each of them there and he knows their name. So I've been giving you, you things. I'm saying this God is rewarding. This God is repairing. This God is protecting. This God is guiding. This God is creating. He's sustaining. He's all-knowing. He's all-governing. He's incomparable. He's the judge of nations. And for this one, I put this God is amazing. I have no answer to that. See, he's amazing. And the Babylonians, the Babylonians looked up at the stars and they thought that the stars were gods. The Babylonian religion oftentimes worshiped the star. And Isaiah says, the Babylonians worship stars. Your God creates them, names them, and sustains them to the tune of 100 octillion stars that he holds in his hand. He's amazing. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and see who created these. Oh, sorry. Uh, he who brings out their host by number, calling their name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. See, they're, they're worried. They're whining. Why, why are you saying that God has ignored you? Do you think that God could ever ignore you? He, 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 he speaks to a hundred octillion stars. And if he can speak and take time to speak to 100 octillion stars, he can take time and speak to every one of the 7 billion humans on, on the planet, including you, Judah, including you, 
Why, why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unchangeable. They're like, well, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God doesn't want me. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe, And he says, no, no, no. He hung in the stars and speaks to them. He hears you. He sees you. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord God is everlasting. He extends into history in both directions. Without beginning, without end. He is the speaker, the creator. He is all of these things. Everything we've said leads up to this point. Because he's rewarding, because he's repairing, because he's protecting, because he's guiding, because he's creating and sustaining, because he's all-knowing, because he's all-governing, because he's incomparable, because he's the judge of nations, because he is amazing, be comforted. This is your God. Behold your God. It starts at the beginning. It changes everything. When you behold this kind of God, there is comfort. There is the reality that we exist as something very, 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 very tiny in the scheme of 100 octillion stars in 10 trillion galaxies. And yet God sees you, knows you, loves you, interacts with you, made you, designed you, cares for you, protects you, guides you. He has the power to do it because he made it. He created it. He sustains it. He knows. He governs. God has the power to sustain and comfort you. This is a comfort. Israel, why be downcast? This is your God. Behold him. But not only is he comforting. In his comfort, he is empowering. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has been made, who has no might, he increases strength. You ever feel like that? Right? Power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and grow weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint, right? That all goes under the category of behold your God. When that God is beheld, when that God is gazed upon, when that God is known, when that God is, I, I don't want to say understood because we'll never understand, but when we begin to set our heart upon the task of doing our little tiny job and our little tiny ability to comprehend and understand who that God is, when we behold that God, we realize that he is rewarding, he is repairing, he is protecting, he does guide, he creates and sustains you and me and everything that is. He's all-knowing. He's all-governing. He's the judge of nations. He's incomparable. He's amazing. And because of that, behold your God. Not only is he comforting, he is empowering. For those moments when you feel faint, when those moments when you feel weak, those moments you feel like, I can't go on, I won't go on, there's nothing left in me. At those moments when you arrive at that place, you are at the beginning of your strength. 
Not the end. Because in that place, maybe it's the time as it says in, in, in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. What does it mean? Those who come to God realizing they have nothing to offer. There's the news. You don't have anything to offer. Here's the better news. God created you, made you, wants you, cares for you, sustains you, governs you, keeps you, and he is going to empower and comfort you. In the moments when you feel faintest, like you can't go on, my answer to you is this. Behold your God, you can do nothing more powerful in your moment of pain, in your moment of sorrow, in your moment of struggle than to take your eyes off from the mirror and place it into the heavens. Look at the starry host. All 100 octillion of them, right? Look at them. Look at the starry host. He put them there. He knows their name. But Isaiah wants you to understand this. Is that if he knows their name, he knows yours too. He knows your name. He knows your heart. He knows your needs. He knows your struggle. He knows your sorrow. He knows your hurt. He knows it all. And the answer to that is not for you to wallow. The answer to that is not for you to dive deeper. The answer to that is not for you to struggle harder. The answer to that is to take your eyes off from the idol of self and place them on to your God. Behold your God. Pray with me. Jesus.